Good morning, and welcome to Everyday Law. I say good morning, which is unusual because the show is customarily done in the afternoon, but we have the unique privilege in having as our guest Dr. Timothy Frazier of Premier Orthopedics on the show today. Welcome, Dr. Frazier. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. As always, this show is not intended to provide legal advice or legal opinions to those who are listening to it. If you have an individual legal problem, it is important that you seek out an attorney and acquaint them with all the facts. Also, the opinions and thoughts that are offered on this show are not those of Howard County Community College faculty, staff, employees, or otherwise. And with that said, let's get down to things. Dr. Frazier, you practice with Premier Orthopedics, which I believe has offices in Frederick, Ellicott City, Laurel, and somewhere else? And Owings Mills. Owings Mills. So you touch a lot of different counties here in the state of Maryland. Can you tell the ladies and gentlemen what being an orthopedic surgeon essentially is? Being an orthopedic surgeon, we specialize in musculoskeletal care. So that is going to be putting together bones, tendons, and ligaments mainly. But we also have to have specialties in vascular surgery, so we do put together small vessels and nerves and upper and lower extremity surgery as well. So it's a very diverse field within uh, musculoskeletal medicine. And is this something that you knew your entire life you wanted to do, or when did it first dawn on you that being a doctor would be something you'd like to pursue? Well, growing up, I grew up in Baltimore City, and my father would always have us do these hard jobs growing up, and uh, <laughs> like landscaping and like a demolition. At 13, I was on a demolition site and, you know, handling a jackhammer. Oh, Lord. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it was, and, and this was like training because for sports and stuff. And so he would keep us, you know, in, in shape during the summers when we were off of work. But he would always say, you know, Tim, you're going to be my doctor and my brother, Wayne, you're going to be the lawyer. And finally, I, when I was 14, I asked him, I was like, if I'm going to be a doctor, I at least got to see what a hospital looks like. And, <laughs> So he got me a job at the next that summer at Hopkins. Oh wow! And he got me a job, and I was a janitor at Hopkins. And so you know, cleaning, I would clean the floors and go in and empty the trash in patients' rooms and things like that. And and uh, I would sit in there and talk to the patients. And I kind of you know got talked to a couple of times because I wasn't you know, on time, because I was just like sitting in the room talking to patients and things. And um, But that, that just kind of stuck with me, and I knew that this was, you know, the place that I wanted to be. That's a fantastic story. Did Wayne become a lawyer? He did not. Uh, he's uh, followed my father's footsteps in construction. Okay, okay. Sometimes that's an easier path, I think, you know, not having to go to a thousand years of school like you have done so. Oh, yeah, definitely. So you went to Hampton University as an undergraduate, correct? Correct. And in looking at your resume, it appears that you had a football career there. Yeah, yeah. I got uh, played football at Poly in Baltimore. I know Poly uh, well. Yep, and I, I, was, I was fortunate enough to get recruited to, and Hampton was actually the first school to offer me. And uh, I liked what they had going on down there. They had just won two conference championships. And so I accepted and uh, took a scholarship to Hampton to play football and uh, ended up redshirting my freshman year, and then I started my last three seasons. 
That's fantastic. So one of the things I would imagine, there's probably an interplay between your present profession and the injuries that you either experienced or saw on the football field. Oh, goodness, yeah, yeah. Going into medicine, I after my Hopkins stint, uh, the I had several other summers at Hopkins, and uh, each time I'd had a different job. But the summer, one summer when I was stocking the ORs, mm-hmm. so I got to be in the operating rooms a lot, I met a famous nurse at Hopkins named Janet McIntyre. So why is Janet famous? Janet is famous because Janet is the engine behind Dr. Ben Carson. Ah. And so she talked to me and, you know, heard my story, and she said, oh, my God, you have to talk to Dr. Carson. And so I, she introduced me to him, and he allowed me to shadow him for a week while I was there. And so it was just an amazing experience. And so I uh, wanted, when I go into the medicine, I wanted to be a, neuro, a neurosurgeon. Sure. And it was either that or, obviously, orthopedics was there because that was my only other exposure to doctors. Okay. And, um, but then in med school, my first experience with neurosurgery was kind of a very high and a very low because I was able to participate in saving a person's life. And then the very next week... I had to watch someone die. Mm. And that is, you know, it's that's just part of life when you're dealing with, you know, the brain. And that I didn't I didn't take that very well. I didn't like seeing my patients die and I recognized that orthopedic surgery is more of a quality of life and that's not something that you really have to deal with in in, you know, as much or as prevalent in this field. Sure. And I think that that was a big driving force between the two fields. That's a wonderful story about Dr. Carson. Did you stay in touch with him after that? Um, no, but interestingly enough, he, and let's see, when I was, I think this was my first year of residency, mm-hmm. he actually operated on my niece. And so I came home after the operation. I was in Norfolk in the Navy and uh, came home to see my niece in the hospital and he came around and he was rounding that morning and so i talked to him now this is i'm what in residency i'm 30 almost Mm -hmm. and at the time when i met him i think i was 16 wow and so he didn't uh, recall that i'm sure he's had many 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 people shadow him and uh but he was very proud you know that i had made it to you know where i made it That's a wonderful idea. And, you know, it's kind of what we're talking about in this show routinely is people taking things when they're young and making the most of them and and finding, you know, the career end that best suits their skill set and also is beneficial to the public. And that, that sounds like a great background on that. So in addition to playing football, you also were in the military. Yeah. Yeah. After college, I, uh, before med school, I was figuring out how I was going to, you know, go that route. And my older cousin, who is my kind of my mentor, he's an orthopedic surgeon as well. He did med school through the Health Profession Scholarship, right. which is the Navy scholarship to pay for med school. And so I saw that as a viable option. And just, you know, my family background, both my grandfathers served in the military, and so I did have a want to, you know, serve in the military, and so I thought that would be a good option for me. And when was that that you joined the military? Was this post-college and before med school? Right. Yeah, I was uh, commissioned in 2005. Okay. 
Okay. Did you have occasion to serve overseas? I did, yeah. In 2010, I got stationed with the Marines out in 29 Palms, California, and for and that's in the Mojave Desert. Sure. And so uh, they, but as soon as I get boots on the ground there, they, I was there for about a month, and they shipped our unit to Afghanistan. Oh wow! And um, that was a nine-month trip in southern Helmand Province, Afghanistan, front line with the Marines. And that's been a hopping place in Afghanistan since the beginning of this business. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. It's uh, We were right there on the river, and so we were a reconnaissance battalion, which, if, if anybody knows anything about military recon, is kind of the, we call it the tip of the spear. They're the first guys that go in, and they're a specialized unit. But we were an armored reconnaissance battalion, meaning that we rode around in armored vehicles, and so we could cover a large ground. So we had to cover the whole southern, basically southern third of Afghanistan, all the way to the Pakistan border. And it was a very interesting, you know, place for medicine, because as one doctor, I had 1,200 Marines spread out over, you know, a third of a country, almost. And I had to cover you know, all of those Marines and provide the medical support through my wonderful corpsmen. And the corpsmen are Navy medics. Right. And, you know, and so I had to train them, and they were out there handling these things, snake bites, broken bones, you know, and as a 18-year-old, 19-year-old medic. And before I could get to them, it was, it was a great experience. I don't know if you had occasion to read, but there is a fascinating article that was published in the Washington Post today and was online yesterday about information that was obtained through the Freedom of Information Act all about Afghanistan and about something a little bit akin to the Pentagon Papers in Vietnam where the leaders are saying one thing and sadly on the ground things weren't always as they represented. I have not read that, but that is war. (laughs) Yeah, you have more experience with that than I. So (laughs) so were you also treating combat injuries, or or were they not occurring? Oh, certainly, yeah. We had had combat injuries, um, and that was a major part of my time with the shock trauma platoon. On our main site, because we had such a large area, Mm -hmm. and... So if you are not within one hour flight to a medical facility that has operative capability, then they have to put a shock trauma platoon there. And that is basically uh, on the back of a tractor trailer. And you have kind of, you can give blood to people, you can do minor, minor procedures in there, and that would ride out and bridge the gap between you know, where the people were and getting them to a higher level facility. And so in the shock trauma platoon, we were able to treat combat injuries there, mainly, you know, stopping bleeding, patching up, and then sending people on to the next level. So was there any care provided to the local people that you encountered? Actually, I treated more Afghan people than I did American military. Interesting. It was when I was based and I wasn't out, you know, uh, traveling around, we would have multiple, I mean, Afghans would walk for miles to come to our gate to get treated in my tent rather than to go to their hospital. 
because the medical system is different there. If you don't, if you can't pay there, they won't treat you. You die on the doorstep sure. at some at their hospitals. And uh, there's no insurance or you know mandate to stabilize before sending you out. And so they know that the Americans won't turn them away, and you know we wouldn't, and I would treat them. That had to be a very rewarding thing. Certainly, it it helps me, you know, see everybody the same. When I walk in the room, I you know I think about it, and I just think that you know everybody deserves my time, no matter how tired I am, and no matter what they look like, what they smell like, sure. <laughs> and they deserve my time. So I would presume most of them didn't speak English, however. No, but we had translators. Okay, that's what I was yeah. thinking. They Pashtun? Did they speak mostly, or do you know Pashtun? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Did you pick up any Pashtun while you were there? I did not pick up any Pashtun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured next time I'd learn a few phrases and then I could ask you some questions or something. But uh, now that yeah. sounds like that's had to have been in some ways quite an inspiring circumstance to be in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it, it, like I say, I, it's one of those things I would never volunteer for again. Understandably. <laughs> but, but uh, it was one of those things I would never want to give up the sure. experience of. So you had to be relatively close to Pakistan some of the time, too. Yeah. Our major, I'm allowed to, you know, talk about this. Sure, uh, sure. CO, you know, told us to share the story. Um, and our, our major battle, if you uh, kind of call it that, we was right there on the Pakistan border. We were looking at it. And we had to trek. It was about a 16-hour, you know, trek down to set up a small base down there and prepare for it. And so, yeah, we were, you know, we had planes flying overhead, and supposedly somebody dropped the bomb in in Pakistan. Oh, my. (laughs) But we would uh, would never violate the sovereign rights of Pakistan, would we? No, we wouldn't do that. No. Wow. Yeah. So that's a little more excitement than maybe you cared for? Oh, yeah. Well, and so I I never, and I, I would say that I never once felt like I was in any imminent danger. Sure. I would say that the only the only danger that I ever, you know, encountered was just riding around on the roads. I mean, there were, you know, the IEDs on the roads. Sure. That could happen to anyone. But it, anywhere that I was... I mean, I had a perimeter. I had, you know, guys uh, overwatch. I, you know, if, if if they got to me, then it's just a bad day for anybody, for yeah. everybody. I mean, so you were probably thrilled to come back. What did you do upon your return? Oh, after I got back, man, I got married. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I uh, got back and. I think I proposed to my wife within two weeks. Wow. And, uh, and then we got married uh, about six months later and, and um, you know, happily, happily married now. Well, that's wonderful. So at some yeah. point, and I hate to bring this point up, but you attended the University of Virginia. And as a devoted Maryland fan, you can imagine Virginia winning the national championship last year was a little bit difficult to accept. But Yes, wahoo Exactly. <laughs> so you did attend medical school at the University of Virginia. I did. And yeah. how did you find that experience? Yeah, UVA is obviously a great school. It is an amazing, you know, uh, educational experience down there. 
and uh, you know, beautiful campus. Um, but I mean, that that was different than college. You know, you uh, med school was it was business, and you know, you're there to learn this craft. And my head was largely down and in the books uh, during those four years. So I wouldn't say that I got to experience UVA as, you know, some of the undergrads have experienced it, but I do have a fondness for it, you know, especially my time there and what I learned there. So you weren't out drinking mint juleps on the lawn? I did not have that. I did walk the lawn a few times, but I did not get the mint juleps. (laughs) No, I didn't. So just for the benefit of the students here, how rigorous is medical school? How many years is it? What is it like? How many hours a day does it consume? That sort of thing generally. And um, med school's four years. And every med school, I would say, or most uh, med schools are different overall. Some med schools will have, you know, the class structure from, eight in the morning till four in the afternoon and you know and you're going and going to these classes some med schools do weekly quizzes and weekly tests and they test along that that lines those lines and then they rank you then there are other schools and they have different philosophies uva was a bit different in that sense where UVA, they did eight to we we would do classes from eight to twelve and then it would be, you know, self-study after that. Our tests, you know, were UVA had an honor system, and, you know, we would be able to take our tests kind of on our own in the, in the library and, you know, being comfortable where, where you are. And that was kind of their, their philosophy behind it. And that's what, you know, took me to that med school. And uh, I like that that system. And then they, you know, they didn't rank. It was a pass-fail type of situation. And so kind of they, you know, on you to learn the material and to become a good doctor. And, and they figure if you're here, then you, you want to do this and you're going to give your all for it. So was there anything in your undergraduate studies that kind of prepared you for medical school or was it just a whole different animal? Um. For me, it was it was a different animal, but I think I think my undergrad, I, yes, I, I had a good background. I was a biology major at uh, Hampton U, and then I did a, a ma- to play my last year of football. I did a master's in medical science, and that was basically kind of reinforcing. It was everybody who was in the program was either going to medical or dental school, and they were reinforcing the concepts and about biochemistry, physiology, and all that. So I had a good academic background going in. The problem that I encountered going into med school was how do I replace sports? How, and, how did you? And right, and it was a that was a bit of a struggle in the beginning because I had always my entire life it was you know, get out of class, and then you go and you go to practice and you work out, and then it's, you know, 6 or 7 o'clock at night, and then you got, you know, a two- to three-hour window, and you can study, and, you know, and you're going to sleep. And and so I was so used to that, and I was used to succeeding on that two to three hours a day of studying where when the sports window was gone, I was still only studying in the beginning that two to three hours, and that was not enough for med school. 
And so I had to replace the sports window with study, and that was just an adjustment that I had to make. And, and uh, during the first year, I, I, you know, it was noticeable. I could see that. So I presume that you also have a fair amount of clinical uh, involvement when you're in med school as well. Certainly, yeah. Um, the first two years are didactic. You're in class and, um, and studying. And then the last two years, your third and your fourth year, are your clinical years of med school. And so you are doing, it's all hospital-based or clinic-based. So you're not in any classrooms in the third and fourth year. And you're part of the team. And you do different uh, fields of medicine. You do internal medicine. You do surgery, OBGYN, kind of the core medical fields. And you get introduced to each one of them. And then at the end of each one, you have a test on, on the rotation, and that's how they grade you, along with your, you know, getting graded by the team that you're working with. Mm-hmm. And then in the fourth year, you kind of get into your electives, and so that's when I could do my orthopedic surgery stuff and my orthopedic surgery research, you know, months and things like that after I've done my core stuff in my third year. So when do you actually officially become an MD? You become an MD after you graduate med school. So after the four years and then you graduate, you are an official medical doctor. You can go hang, uh, shingle up, and you can practice general medicine. So are there individual state or jurisdictional licensures that you have to also obtain? Yeah, so you have to get a medical you have to get a state medical license and and so if you want to graduate med school and you want to go practice medicine in an urgent care facility, then you would um, you know, have to get a medical license in the state of Maryland and then you can go and do like I said general medicine in an urgent care facility. Um now, you leave if you don't do a residency, which obviously everybody does, it does seem that way. then you leave yourself open to uh, you know being at fault if you you know make a mistake because you didn't have the appropriate training. And so so uh, most people, everybody pretty much goes and does a residency of some kind. And that is in the field, and the residency can be either three to up to uh, seven years. Oh, Lord. And neurosurgery is a seven-year residency. What's orthopedic? uh, Orthopedics is five. Most of the surgical residencies are five years. Okay. So you complete medical school, you go into a five-year residency. It seems like a long time to get to starting off a career. Oh, certainly, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, and mine was even longer because I did that uh, master's degree program, and then I, in the military, they interrupted my residency to send me out with the Marines, and that's just part of what they what can happen if you choose the military career. Sure. I mean, I would presume that working in Afghanistan with the soldiers and the indigenous people is highly beneficial to your present practice in that you've seen so many different circumstances and so many different injuries and that sort of thing and had occasion to treat them. Certainly, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't trade, wouldn't trade it for anything. So you completed your orthopedic surgery residency, and what did you do then? 
Uh, after orthopedic surgery residency, then uh, I went into practice as an orthopedic surgeon. My uh, station was in, I was fortunate enough to get stationed in uh, Spain. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, so they, the Navy has a uh, base. Well, it's a Spanish base, but we serve on uh, the Spanish base in Rota, Spain. That is in southern Spain at just uh, north of Gibraltar. Okay. Did you go see the apes at Gibraltar? I did, yes. <laughs> a couple of times, actually, because when people come to visit, everyone wants to go see them. Everybody wants to go to Great Britain, right? Yeah, yeah. So you, and, were, uh, you were in Spain for how long? I was there for two years. Okay. And, yeah. And then at some point in time, I gather you came out of the military. Yeah, fortunate. Well, yes, I I was able to serve in the Marines for two years, and then I did two years in Spain, and that satisfied my commitment. And um, and then I was able to get out. So, what was your rank upon uh, getting out? Lieutenant Commander. Oh, I like that. If I run into you ever, I'll call you Lieutenant Commander instead of uh, Doctor Fraser. <laughs> no problem. So you completed your military service, came out as lieutenant commander, and then what did you do? And then I took a job, took this uh, job here at Premier Orthopedics. I I interviewed widely um, and uh, all over the country, and and just you know, because in the in the Navy, I mean, in, in medicine, you don't get the kind of the business side of medicine, and. Um, and so I wasn't sure if I wanted to work in private practice or university practice or a hospital-based practice. Um, and so I interviewed uh, all these different types of places, and just the the feel of Premier uh, just kind of drew drew, uh, drew me back here. And you're back in Maryland. And I'm back in Maryland. So do you still have family here? Oh yeah, all my family uh, is in Baltimore. Is in Baltimore, and. Um, some in Howard County. I got you. Are they devoted Ravens fans? Devoted, yes. Oh, my. As a Redskin yeah. fan, it's been a little hard to stomach, but I take a sort of altruistic view of it that it's good for the region. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a Redskin hater, and so Thank you. I, I do, I do uh, you know, <laughs> feel for you. Well, I, I sincerely appreciate that, and I believe I've been in the office in Laurel, and there's a lot of big pictures of Redskins, so it's clear that at least some of the orthopedic surgeons there are devoted Redskin fans. Yes. So what do you do day-to-day in your practice now? Day-to-day, I, so I see a, a, a clinic day-to-day, four days a week I'm in clinic, one day a week I'm operating. And um, in in our practice, I... Uh, handle all of the um, upper extremity uh, surgery here. And in English, that means arms, I presume? Sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's okay. uh, Yeah, shoulder. Well, I I handle uh, shoulder and um, all the complex knee, shoulder, uh, elbow, and and, uh, wrist, and all the complex knee and ankle um, cases. So my practice, my portion of the premier orthopedics practice is, uh, is largely surgical, and uh, but I also am handling a portion of the medical legal uh, uh, portion of the practice, picking up independent medical exams and um, and 
Yeah, and, and uh, final evaluations and giving ratings for patients. Yeah, could you briefly discourse on the ratings thing there? It isn't as though the ratings just sort of get made up. There's actually guidelines that govern uh, how this is how the ratings are done. Certainly, yes. Uh, so, yeah, a patient would, who has an injury um, will some, sometimes there is just no more medicine to, you know, make you perfect again. So you're at maximum and, medical improvement. Yes, and you are then at maximum medical improvement, meaning not that you're perfect, but that there's just nothing else that we can do medically. Sure. And so at that point, then we would want to put in a rate to rate your level of impairment that you still currently have. Okay. And so with that, we use uh, guidelines, and uh, they are made by the American Medical Association, and uh, we use these based on your current level of dysfunction. And in orthopedics, it's musculoskeletal, so range of motion is a, your, your range of motion or range of motion loss is a big thing. Um, gauging your weakness or gauging, you know, uh, the things that you can't do anymore. And say if you used to be able to, you know, carry 50 pounds and now you can't carry more than 10 pounds, and your job required you to carry, you know, 50 pounds, well, then that, you know, comes with a certain level of rating sure. um, with that. And we put all of that together uh, after examining the patient, and based on the guidelines, we give the patient an impairment rating of their current level of impairment. I regret to say it, but we have used up the time for the show today. You had such an interesting backstory, I couldn't help but spend some time with it. I also think it's something that the students could relate to in their own lives. And I'd like to thank you, Dr. Frazier, for coming on. I hope we'll have you back again soon. All right, Bob. No problem. Take care. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.